And we're live. And this is Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson. And my guest today is my friend, Bennett Salve. Yay. Hey. Hi, Bennett. I'm so glad. Hi, Vicky. You know, you know, Bennett, it's so crazy because we were going to do this. Right before um, the pandemic. That's right. We, yeah. And you were traveling then. And yeah. I was afraid to have you in my house because I, yeah, I think I, I was in Nashville because I, I actually went to Nashville. I think everything shut down middle of March. And I think I was in Nashville like the first week of March. And we were going to go like the third week of March or something like that. No, we were actually scheduled from March 11th. Okay. And what happened, and it wasn't quite the shutdown yet. The shutdown happened a couple of days later on yeah, Friday. Yeah, did. Yeah, middle of March. Yeah. But I ran, I you had traveled and Pete, right. who was running my my camera had traveled and I was already scared. And so yeah. I, I put the Ixnay on it and Pete was like, what are you, what are you crazy? And literally two days later, they shut down. The and the rest country. is history. Yeah. The rest <laughs> is history. But here we are. So here we are, but, but, um, uh, I, uh, Tony, I want to tell you that Bennett was just complimenting the composite that you did of she's on the show. And I just wanted oh, cool. that you, yeah, yeah. So, my good, good research. So, um, the research I did, but Tony did the art. She's the she's the eye. She's the visual. Yeah. So what what were what did you have going on right before this? The people who watch this show, we, I call them the COVID. We call the COVID crazies, <laughs> and uh, because that's what we are. So so what what we what did you have cooking? What did you have to stop? What got put on hold, if anything? How did your life change? Well, I'm trying to think. I was definitely working on some records and movies. Um, the, let's see. We this was in March, right? Right, mid March, 2020. Yeah. So I did a movie. I did a movie that came out that I worked did the year before called Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice, oh, which is a documentary. Bennett, I got to yeah. tell you how brilliant, how much I loved that that film. Excellent film. It was great. And um, a, a colleague of mine, we've done a lot of projects together, Julian Raymond, who's a great songwriter, producer, composer. We did, we scored that movie and uh, for James Keach was a producer. We've, we've done a number of projects with James and <clears throat> Jeffrey Friedman and Rob Epstein were the directors or multi-academy award winners. They did a wow. uh, Harvey Milk documentary. Oh, that they was did, a great one too. Yeah, they did the quilt, you know, about the AIDS quilt. So they're, they're like really fan, right. fantastic team. So that was a just a fantastic project to work on. And, you know, Linda's, I've been a fan of Linda and a lot of the other people in that movie. So it was kind of a real fun, you know, certain projects are just really like hard work and backbreaking. That one was really fun to do. And it was like, the music was cool and the score was cool, but it was also just fun to be part of it. And, and it was just this, I was just a fan of the movie <laughs> besides uh, scoring it. But what happened was, it's kind of a funny story. Um, yeah. Linda Ronstadt's, um, I mean, I know Linda personally, but she's very, uh, she's really smart. She's really sharp and she's uh, funny and she's great. So anyway, she, she was reluctant to be in her own documentary. So they had all this archival Wait, was she reluctant, Bennett, because of the MF? Because I of the think situation? so, and I can't speak exactly for her, but I know right. she's reluctant. Mm -hmm. And so James Keach made a deal with Linda, <laughs> which this is going to talk to what I was doing when the pandemic started. Okay. And Linda has a, pro a charity, essentially, she's very involved with called Sentzotles, which is 
Senzontle, it's hard to pronounce. Um, it's a group in the Bay Area, the East Bay, and they teach a lot of like, um, like Mexican-American kids about Mexican heritage, music. I think like 7,000 kids have already gone through there. Wow. And, and some of the kids are now like teachers there and it's a great. So Linda said, okay, James, you want me to be in your, <laughs> your movie? Do another movie about my project because I want wow. this to get out and it ties into like immigration issues. It ties into, wow. And, and Linda, as you probably know, you know, she has a real tie to traditional Mexican music. Her dad was from Mexico. By the way, I went to school in Tucson, which is where Linda's from. I know her right. father's hardware store. Yeah. And her, and her mother was like a, a physicist that went, you know, I mean, oh, wow. She comes from quite a, and her, her dad was an incredible musician. I mean, you know, people can watch the movie, but it goes into all her background. Anyway, this was near and dear to her. So James Keach made a deal. She made a deal. Okay, I'll be in your movie. And the, the end of that movie, I won't give it away, is an incredible like tear jerking scene with Linda and her family. And she's in, you know, a couple other spots. And she goes, I will do that. But you need to make a movie, another documentary about this group. And I'll be in that too. And we'll go to Mexico. And so basically that happened. So that movie really wow. featured Linda Jackson Brown and this group, you know, and, and so that was going on. Um, literally, I did the first scoring sessions in Nashville with a, kind of a small group mm -hmm. when the pandemic, like right before the pandemic. So that's why I was in Nashville. When oh. I didn't see you. So we were doing some sessions for that movie. So I really, right when the pandemic came, I had a movie that was going on. So this, um, and it's called Linda and the Mockingbirds is the name of the movie. And it's been out on HBO Max and um, it's I'm available. writing that down. What's that one about? Well, it's about this group. It's about- Oh, uh, that's the, oh, you're talking about yeah. her other movie. Okay. Yeah, Linda and the Mockingbirds. Okay. And uh, Jackson Brown is in it, who, you know, who's great and I've had a chance to talk, you know, talk to at length a couple of times. He's a, a, a huge hero of mine as a songwriter growing I up. was actually hugging Jackson Brown a week before he was diagnosed with COVID. Wow. <laughs> well, hopefully you didn't get it. No, I <laughs> but, did not. Yeah, I've, I've been able to meet him a couple of times and, and uh, you know, it was just kind of amazing because he's great in the movie and he's so, I don't know, down to earth and humble. Mm -hmm. and to me, it's like, oh my God, this guy is like, an idol a songwriter and a big influence. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of really a fun movie to do. It wasn't, it was a little smaller budget than the Linda, the, uh, than the Sound of My Voice movie, but right. uh, it was really a cool movie. And so that's what I was working on. And that so was on it, was it fit? Was your part finished when? No. Oh, no, 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 no. So what happened? How'd you finish it? Well, I, um, there's a guitar player uh, named George Deering, who's like a renowned yes, film, I know who he is. player. Mm -hmm. So George, um, he's got a great studio in his place. And, you know, we do this a lot now. We send files, you know, over the internet. And right. I love being in the room with players. But if you can't, you know, this this is the next best thing. So, like, people worked on it remotely. Um, we didn't really have, um, like, a live string group like I do in some movies. But right. George did a lot of stuff. I had a few other musicians that work remotely. I had George come over to my place too. So during, during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, he, he, um, I think early on, I think I was going to say this is before vaccinations. <laughs> oh yeah. Way before I yeah. think I'm trying to think of the timing. Um, but you know, I have, I have room in here. So, you know, he, he, he definitely did quite a bit of stuff here mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so then it, the movie really wasn't finished till maybe that summer. 
So I had a project immediately, which, wow. which was that movie. And I've had other, um, I just finished a movie called Bonded during that time. I've done some string arrangement stuff. I worked with some bands. So I've, it's been kind of nice. Like it's been kind of fairly steady, but not crazy, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh -huh. Like, yeah, had some kind of interesting projects. Um, I actually had, <laughs> this is kind of crazy. I had a number one country song in the last few months that I did a string arrangement for, which is very controversial. Why is that? Well, it's, it's by this guy, Aaron Lewis. And um, what's it called? It's called, am I the only one? Okay. I, I think that's an, um, and it was kind of about statues, you know, coming down, like it was this very like, like kind of, you know, it was all over the LA times and, it was, and, and it, it did incredibly. It like shot. Okay, wait, wait, what, what made it controversial? Well, I think cause it was about like political correctness or, mm. you know, you can, I can't interpret the song for him, but it didn't mean like statues of, Abraham Lincoln coming down or did it mean Confederate? It doesn't say that, but I think I got a lot of like, and it's kind of cool. I mean, the only thing in the song was an acoustic guitar and strings. So I think he's pretty outspoken. So it was funny because people were saying, oh my God, you, you know, but I, you know, I kind of think everybody's got their own vision and right to do their own music. So it was kind of right. fun. Like it was like, oh, wow, we just did a number one, you know, country song, you know? That's really group. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so like it was literally, I wrote the arrangement and we wrote out the parts and, you know, this isn't that long ago, like this is a few months ago and sent the parts to Nashville mm -hmm. and they recorded it like the next day. It was one of those quick things that just came up. Wow. And, um, and I like doing that, you know, it's kind of one of the things I like to do is, you know, working with artists. So that was kind of a fun pandemic thing. And, you, you know, what's interesting is that when we, when we can't, when I canceled, postponed us doing this March yeah. 11th, 2020, it, it, 18 months ago, um, you said, and I then when I started up on Zoom about six weeks later and I invited you and you said, no, nah, I'd rather wait till we can do it live, thinking that right. we would be live again any day, right? Whoever would have conceived. And now this has become the new normal. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I've done more interviews on Zoom than. Oh, I do it all the time, too. Like I, I, I just finished this movie that that called Bonded that had a ton of music, like an hour and a half of music. What's that? What's that? What's the, the log line for the movie? Um, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very like, I think it's going to be really good. It's a, it's kind of a dark, serious movie. It, it, it's based on something that really happened in the mid nineties oh. uh -huh. where in downtown LA, well, actually El Monte, you know, suburb of Los Angeles, the LAPD raided a house that yeah. turned out it had 75 garment workers that were basically enslaved labor conditions. Oh my God. Yeah. So, um, and it was all over the news, the story. So uh, Mo Ramshandani, Ramshandani, who's the director and producer, wrote a movie that's loosely based on that. You know, he, you know, I don't want to, the movie's not out right. yet. So I don't want to give away right, too right, many right. details. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah um, it was just changed. And the main protagonist is a, a kid from Mexico that was kind of, you know, brought here mm -hmm. by coyotes or by, you know, human smugglers, you know, to work in the garment business. So it's, uh, and I actually worked with, it's a crazy long story, but I worked with Lisa Gerard, who probably not, you know, scored Gladiator and Michael Mann movies and she's in Dead Can Dance, which is a fantastic band, fantastic vocalist. Um, and she, she had started the movie and did some of it. And then the, they're really locked, she's Australian. So they're really locked down there. So I ended up kind of um, 
the director asked me to come on board. So I ended up writing a lot of stuff. Lisa wrote stuff. I kind of did a lot of the, the final mixing and I, you know, worked with some of Lisa's stuff, but um, it was really chaotic, honestly. Like it was pretty hard to work on that one during the pandemic because it was really Why is that? Well, because um, first of all, there's a ton of music. It was a really complicated movie to do. Um, and Lisa was in Australia, so we really couldn't get together physically. Right. It would have been right. something that would have been good to do that. And in fact, the final cue in the movie, there's a big, long emotional cue. And up to that point, I had used some of Lisa's stuff where she sang and I kind of, um, even her stuff, I kind of use her vocal in other spots and move stuff around when I use her stuff. And But I really needed her to be on this cue and put her, you know, kind of some new vocals and new ideas on top of some things that I did, which was mix some of her. So she actually sang it in Australia and it was only like one weekend they were open. She could have an engineer come over and record her. Like it was really- Oh, right. Scary. Australia was very strict about the lockdown. Very strict. Yes, and, and she, yes. So she lives in a town not far from Melbourne, like in the, mm -hmm. in the mountains. I don't remember the name, but so it was kind of, I was nervous doing it a little bit because we weren't in the same country. We weren't in the same room and I kind of had to send- you weren't in the same continent. We weren't in the same continent. <laughs> and and she ended up loving the piece and she did an amazing job and she's amazing. So that's fabulous. But it was, we had a lot of Zoom, like with the director at times, um, at the post-productions in Mexico City, a lot of it. I mean, the movie's still going on. We're done with the music. But so that one was tough because it was way more music than any of those other movies I mentioned. Right. And it was very kind of intense movie and project really you know really a good one but mm -hmm. um and we had to do string dates so i did a string date at, at henson which used to be a and m and we socially distanced you know players and right uh and the director really wanted a children's choir but the reality is there's no way i can get a children's choir with you know 20 something kids in the same room on microphones right and he was like well can, how can we do a children's choir i said mo we, you know there's no way you can do this so i ended up getting um finding another way to do it with this singer who had kids that were really good singers and he knew somebody else that had kids and they he brought them in separately at different times and it, it worked great wow and, and Lisa let, let, yeah so we just found a way to do it that's okay adaptability that was my next question yeah. do you like i'm thinking this makes it so much easier. There are so many people that I wasn't able to interview for years because they weren't mm -hmm. in LA. And right. I was always in my living room with people next, right. to, next to me or in a studio. I'm thinking that moving forward, I'm always going to have Zoom. I mean, I hope to do some live stuff, but I'm always going to use Zoom now. Do you think this is a new way that think projects are going to get done more efficiently, more less expensively do you think that or do you think it's going to go back I think yeah I think there's a place for it but I don't think it's a replacement completely. no I don't think, I think it's, it's a replacement it's, either I think it's an added tool because mm -hmm. like I know some movies really had to record all the musicians separate and you know when it's really locked down and there's something about going into a you know even on a I mean I've worked on movies the biggest with like 90 players you know like wow um and you know, even on this movie, it wasn't that big of a budget, but we, you know, we had 20 string players um, and just having everybody in the room together, it just has a different sound. And it has and a different a, feeling too. And the, magi different I, the feeling, magic, a different the magic, energy. That yes, the magic. And um, even, you know, it would have been nice to come and do your podcast in person if it wasn't, you know, these times. Right. So, but I do think I do work. Um, I've recorded scores in Europe. I've 
Um, I work, you know, Nashville a decent amount of time. I have colleagues there. I have colleagues in other areas. So it is a great way, even when you say you send files, you know, to people, right? Like, it's just a good way to, it's an added tool to communicate. That's pretty easy. Absolutely. So I think even, I if, even if it's tool. just meetings in preparation, right. it just makes it the traffic in LA to just avoid mm -hmm. that. Forget the plan. Yeah, yeah. And that part's kind of great because yeah. I, I yeah. had a meeting recently uh, with the head of music for one of the Disney divisions and, and like, you know, it's kind of cool. Like instead yeah. of like, okay, yeah. if I have to drive in LA and go and get on a lot, there's times that it makes sense to do that. But for right. this kind of thing, it was just a general meeting and mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the, this, this person, you know, knew my music and wanted to talk and wanted to consider me for other projects. It was like a perfect way to do it because right. it was more of a general meeting and touching base. And, right. uh, and we, it was like an hour meeting, you know, with him, the, the whole, and you know what? Somebody from the department was in Costa Rica, <laughs> somebody yeah, was at their house in Santa Monica. So, like people were, you know, somebody was in New York. So I think for that, it's really cool actually that you can, um, I agree, have meetings like that, but I do I like having players. If I have a choice, I love having players in the same room. Whenever. Okay. So speaking of uh, having players in the same room, you're a player, you're in the room, you're in your room, but you right. have a keyboard in front of you. Can you give us a little taste of something from that Linda Ronstadt documentary? Yeah. So um, th there's kind of a big story to this we, I can get into, but um, when I did the Linda documentary, I had, I'd come off, I had a pretty bad accident. Literally the anniversary of my accident was three years ago. Okay. Let's, will... let's, let, we, let's go there because it, okay. it has to do with you, this story you're going to tell. Okay. So. okay. so it's funny. It's the anniversary, the three-year anniversary yesterday. Um, I do a lot of boating. I've had boats most of my life. And it was one of those things. I was on my boat. It was 7.15 in the morning, Santa Cruz Island, about 30 miles off of, um, Oxnard Harbor and what were you fishing for um white sea bass yellowtail and I'm very experienced I've, I've had a, boats over 30 years and it was just one of those fluky things I had on gloves and there's something called a windlass which is a really powerful motor with a cylinder mm -hmm. it's called the capstan and that's how you bring up your anchor so the anchor has rope and chain right and I had interestingly I had had a, a jogging injury where I fell and my pinky in my other hand I'll this is, this is my pinky. I still have, I don't have my other yeah. one, but it was kind of bent. I had a tendon thing. So I had, oh, so five... you're not doing, you're not doing that. That That's the way it sits. No, no, no. This one's fine. This is how my oh, left okay. hand, oh, I'm oh, actually oh, missing that finger now. So I can't show you I, I, I my see left hand, but I had gloves on and they were sticking out. I couldn't put it all the way in my hand. And I said to myself, you know, I'm just going to get the anchor myself. I'm not going to wake up the other guys. And just weirdly the end of the, the, this glove somehow fell, got caught in this rope and my hand got pulled into this cylinder. And it was, you know, I, I don't want to gross people out, but it was a, I got pinned and I got stuck and I could hear every bone in my, you know, arm and, you know, I hear all this stuff happening. So I had a guy had gloves, I had a jacket and I was about 30 seconds away from being dead and my hand coming off. And I screamed and I kicked part of the boat because these other two guys were sleeping one guy had earphones and didn't hear me and one guy heard me and he switched it off so basically in 20 seconds though i couldn't see it and i was it was really one of those you hear people talk about it you know um 
a near death experience or life flashes before. I mean, it really was like that because wow. I was thinking of my family and, you know, this is it, you know, like, cause I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't turn the switch off because I was tethered. I was stuck, oh, you know, in this gosh. thing. So, um, so when he turned it off, my friend, oh my God. and I was, I was so relieved. I was so relieved that people asked me that I was like, cause I mean, basically it was very serious. I, I was, um, in the hospital for eight nights, like they did extensive surgeries, but I was so relieved. I didn't feel pain. And I lost, I lost a couple of fingers. I almost lost a third finger. They saved, I had bones sticking out of my arm and it was just a crazy thing. So, um, Oh, your arm was broken as well. It wasn't just your hand. Oh, my forearm. Yeah. My radius was like five inches outside my arm. I mean, I couldn't, <gasps> I had a jacket, so I didn't look, but we did a tourniquet on the boat. We called the coast guard. Yeah. So how did they, how did they get to, how fast well, did all did of that is, happen? Like I was somehow like in people say I, maybe I was in shock. I don't know if it's maybe, but I was in survival mode. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like yes, I was like course. directing, okay, this is what we're going to do. So we called the coast guard. This is kind of an incredible story. I mean, I want to take you, you were orchestrating the, the I was orchestrating. Oh, I was being the conductor. You like, were conducting. Conductor. So God. I, um, Go call the Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard United is amazing. If you have a problem, they are unbelievable. So they immediately get on this really fast boat. They head out. We start heading in. Mm -hmm. um, and we did a tourniquet for a couple of minutes. But I, then I knew I wasn't going to bleed out. I could tell, like, I said, okay, I'm going to survive. I'm not, like, going to. I didn't I didn't look at it. I couldn't see it. I, I knew it was good to keep the glove on. So I came. Um, so the Coast Guard came out. And I told the Coast Guard, like, I didn't tell him myself because I was kind of resting. I said, right. I told the guy running the boat, I said, tell the Coast Guard to call Dr. Glenn Cohen and Westlake because I knew a hand surgeon. That was his name. And I didn't know if they'd get him, you know, it's eight in the morning, but I knew I needed somebody. So anyway, you knew story. a hand surgeon just like this. Yeah, yeah. Crazy story. So Coast Guard takes me in. There's an ambulance waiting. You know, they take me to, to emergency room. I called Dr. Cohen. He goes get the fuck out of there right now. You got to go see this guy at USC Keck Stavanovich. He's one of the best hand surgeons in the world. You need a trauma team. You need like six surgeons. You've got to get there, get out where you are. You, you'll lose your hand, you know, just by knowing what happened. Right. So he had called Stavanovich. He was a resident with this guy. This guy is like insanely brilliant, great guy. He has a protege, Dr. Lefebvre, who's unbelievable, who I still text with to this day. So they got me there the same day. I how did they, surgery. how did, did they? They were going to helicopter me, but they didn't have a helicopter. So they just, it was the middle of the day by then. They just got an ambulance, took me to CCAC. Uh, a couple of doctors came in. <laughs> there was a plastic surgeon. There was a- Meanwhile, are you still in the glove at this point? Um, well, I, I had I had ice. The only thing they did in the ER was they gave me a tetanus shot. They did x-rays, which are hilarious because there's fingers all over, you know? So, so they- oh my <laughs> they take me okay i don't want to get too much because i'm talking about music but by three o'clock they were taking me in to surgery i woke up at 10 at night and you know the way the anesthesia is now like i felt good like if but anyway it took it was you know the, the, they said you know the doctor lefebvre was actually crying with my wife like she goes you know this is very serious but they did it a freaking amazing job so and they saved my third finger which gives me i think the ability really to play and they had hot air on it for 200 hours in the hospital. They had something called the body hugger, um, 
because there was no blood flow. My hand was crushed. So it was an incredible story. I had two years of therapy every week at the hospital. And, you know, I still, I go on the boat, I go fishing. Um, wow. I play, I've done several projects. I play golf. I play golf one-handed, which is my right arm, but I'm pretty good still. Like I'm only Holy. five strokes worse. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm only five strokes worse. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I had the best, um, I get really emotional talking about, it, but my, my doctors, I mean, Dr. Lefebvre, we texted all the time. I mean, when I got home, anytime I had an issue, I would text her, I would send her pictures because my hand was huge still. I had, you know, for a few months, I really couldn't do anything. I couldn't even do really therapy because of all the broken bones. And she did was- Did you think then, Bennett, did you, did it, did you think when it happened, when you just got out of- did you think, oh, I'm going to play again? I'm going to play golf again? I'm going to fish again? Did you I was motivated. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know if mm -hmm. I really want an honest answer. I, mm -hmm. I For sure. But, you know, people ask me that all the time. They say, okay, admit it to me. You were just really depressed. And I said, no, I, I, I swear to you, I wasn't because when I got in the hands of the doctors and I, you know, and I felt okay. And my wife was sleeping at the hospital every night and my kids came and I said, listen, I could have had a brain injury. I could not be able to walk. I could, I mean, my brain is completely fine. So I can compose music because I've yes. got that. Mm -hmm. um, I can walk, you know, who knows how my hand is, what's going to happen, but I'm under, the, I'm in the best hands I can be, you know, no pun, but I mean, I had an incredible, Amy Aguilon's her name. She's an incredible occupational therapist that does trauma at the hospital. Two years straight, you know, I, I saw her. So um, when, did, when did you start being able to use your hand? Well, so for a few months, there's so many broken bones. I couldn't really, and they said it. And then I started, this happened in October. I'd say like, I mean, I saw you play with the Babylon social club, not that long after this. Well, I did, you know, my left hand was kind of messed up, but I definitely in January, I could start doing the therapy a little more seriously because bones heal in about three months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I started to play with one hand, then I started to use one finger in the left hand. I mean, it just, even golf, like, I didn't know if I could play golf, honestly, but I started putting with one hand and I started chipping and I tried to hit it 50 yards and I could kind of do it. It's just kind of all evolved. So to answer your question, I really wasn't, I know it's hard to believe it. I really wasn't depressed. I was just happy that I could start. I really do everything that I did. And I was just very grateful, you know, to, this. I mean, look what I did since then. I've done like. Bennett, I think that's movies. why you've been able to do what you've done. I, I think the fact that you didn't go down the rabbit hole and you did stay grateful because gratitude is everything. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, you, you know, I've seen people with all kinds of problems and, and, you know, and they lose their mental faculty or they lose um, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, so I knew what, however bad it was, it was just my left hand and forearm. And, and I was also felt like I was in good hands. So I had a chance, you know, to, right. but you don't, even the doctors don't know exactly how it's going to go. So apparently I was like a really good case and a really good outcome. And so you know, now, I was very motivated, you know, to do all these things, as you say. And it, absolutely. And having you have had, having had this experience and then working on this documentary on Linda Ronstadt, who is going through her own struggles right. with um, Parkinson's yeah uh so was it ever more poignant D does she know about you I, I don't know 
as it's possible because mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't work with her directly. You know, mm-hmm. I worked with right. um, the directors and with James Keach. Mm-hmm. But so the story um, relating to piano was when we scored that. And when did you? When did you? Sc- when did you score it? Well, I'm trying to think because the movie came out. I feel like I saw it about a year ago, right? Yeah, it came out theatrically towards the end of, of 2019, maybe September. Mm-hmm. Like it was in, uh, I went to a premiere in New York and it was in, it was in theaters and then it was on CNN um, starting January of 20, of 20. That's, that's when I saw it, yeah. So I think I scored it. It really wasn't, it was probably like April of 20. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of the pandemic and all that, how we did it. No, if it came out in 2019, you couldn't have scored it in 20. No, no, no. It was in 19. Right. But, it, but oh, right, right. Because the pandemic. Yeah. Was in right, yeah. right. So, yeah, we did it like April, May. So I had, mm-hmm. I'd been like seven months after my. Wow. And I wrote a piece of music for it. That was a gospel piano piece, which was kind of a big towards the end of the movie. And Linda didn't really want to dwell on the Parkinson's. It was really like a retrospective of her career and musically right. based on her book. But it had to be it had to be in the movie. I mean, it was just part of who she is now. And we had to have right. her now and, and be part of it. So I wrote a kind of a gospel piano piece based that was um, under her talking about Parkinson's. And cause I wanted to be kind of spiritual. And so it, to answer your question, like I'm sure what I went through kind of influenced me what I wrote to some degree. And, but I, I went into Sunset Sound in the studio with this like a, you know, these incredible, musicians and i played it live you know re- recording so it was like a big because you know when i'm in my studio and i can you know have midi and play, you know it's 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 pretty easy to to do that but i you know i had to play live acoustic piano so it was kind of a big deal for me to be able to play with the group and be part of the band and, and i kind of pulled it off <laughs> can so you i'll us- show you that little bit of the piece i'm not gonna play yeah. the whole thing Let me, okay yeah um, well, I got I gotta I gotta warm up my keyboard for a sec. It's gotta refresh. Um, but um yeah, I mean that was like a big thing for me personally that was it that was the was that the first professional playing you have done? Yeah, like in terms of live in a studio or with mm-hmm. like other players. I've been working on the movie and writing and stuff, but um let me see if I'm okay. So it was this gospel piece that kind of went. So she's talking under this. It's beautiful. Now it's going to make me cry. And then like a little guitar comes in. Because I didn't want it to be sappy and stringy. I want it to be kind of... So this is the first thing I played in the studio. Wow. It's beautiful. 
Anyway, so it goes on like that. How so, do you compensate for not having two fingers? Well, so this is an interesting thing because I may now even look at a prosthetic possibly mm -hmm. to get, because I'm compensating because I have this finger, which I was going to lose. And I have a pretty good stretch, like almost an, an octave, really. This I'm playing an octave right now with my thumb. You're kidding. You're I know kidding. I, have, I have really good stretch. Yeah. Wow. I'm playing it right now. That's what I'm doing. Wow. Now I used to be able to play a tenth. I used to be able to play bigger intervals. So there's certain things like more complex things like that, but there's so many great players anyway, when I need it. So, so, but I can jump, you know, I have a, I have a pedal. I can, I mean, it's a lot of bass notes, you know? So, and also in a band thing, you have a bass player. Um, and if I'm, doing something scoring wise, I can overdub, you know, here. So I can kind of do it. I mean, there's certain things I wouldn't play now that I used to play. So, but think of all that I can do. That's sort of what is my thing. I, I like that focus. I like that focus yeah. on, on, on what you can. Yeah. I think but that's I was great. a little nervous, which I normally am not, but it was my mm -hmm. first time with all these people. And they're all my friends, the players and all these great guys, but right. it was like, okay, I got to play this live and be in time and, you know, the directors are here. The producers are here. Like, like, yeah, that's again, just like a session, like I used yeah. to do. So mm -hmm. it was just kind of cool that I could do it. And it's, that gave it, me a lot of confidence moving, moving forward. So it's miraculous as well. It should. So Bennett, before we get to more projects, let's, let's go back and find out how you started doing all this when you were like, a, so were you, was your family musical? When did music start for you and how, um, you know, my, nobody was a professional musician in my immediate family. I had, Where'd you grow up? Um, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, um, Beverly Wood, you know, over the hill till mm -hmm. I was seven. And then my parents built a house in the San Fernando Valley. And <laughs> there's a lot of, there were houses, but there were a lot of like fields and stuff like that. So um, moved there in the mid sixties when I was a kid um, in second, second grade, I think before second grade. Um, I had an uncle well, kind of a distant cousin who was, a, who uh, was a professor at San Diego State of Music and played saxophone. But I mean, I didn't. My dad loved music. I mean, he had a huge opera collection, huge mm -hmm. classical music collection. Loved listening to music, but I didn't. Um, I took piano lessons when I was young, like seven, eight. Did you take it because your parents thought you should take it? Yes. Or, yes. I did, and I didn't. I didn't love practicing. I wasn't very good about that. And I was pretty good, but I, I kind of lost interest. And then this is going way back. So then when I was 12 or 13, I just started playing, sitting down at the keyboard and working stuff out by ear. I guess I always like kind of heard music mm -hmm. in a way. And I loved harmony and I liked, as I became a teenager, I loved jazz. I, I, loved, I was just going to um, ask you what music spoke to you. Yeah. I mean, I studied a lot of classical scores later mm -hmm. and my dad always had opera on and, and classical music, but I really loved, um, I mean, some, all kinds of jazz artists and I really love complex harmonies and um, some of the old time, you know, Bill Evans, a piano player, uh, Oscar Peterson, um, sure. even like Billie Holiday for a young person, like Ella Fitzgerald, you know, her, um, her vocals. And some of the guys that were younger than like Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, mm -hmm. Miles mm -hmm. Davis. I listened to that stuff a lot. Keith Jarrett was really- You incredible. were listening to that stuff when you were a young teenager? Yeah. 
that's very sophisticated music. Yeah, I just really loved it. I, I just really loved that kind of harmony. And even a friend of mine, good friend of mine in New York, um, reminded me we went to see Keith Jarrett when we were in high school at Royce Hall at UCLA. Um, I mean, I liked other stuff too. I loved. I went to James Taylor when I was fourteen, the Hollywood Bowl. Um, I like rock and roll. I like the Faces. I saw Rod Stewart. My my parents were like drove me to the Hollywood Bowl for that. I had a, always had a eclectic taste in music my whole life. I always have, mm -hmm. but. I loved jazz improv. I mean, Keith Jarrett would do concerts. He didn't know what he was gonna play. He would just come and improvise, you know, for two hours or however long. So I would kind of do my own version of that, obviously not to the skill level that they had, but I started writing songs and I loved improvising. So that's really what got me into music was just, mm -hmm. and I also met, I met this guitar player named John Woodhead, who's an incredible player. He was playing in high school with like Leon Russell, Wow. Like um, John Stewart, you know, great folk artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was incredible player. So wow. that was a big influence too. Mm -hmm. And he had a band and he like definitely at that time, like he was way better than me. <laughs> so it kind of helped me be a better player because I was in bands with him. And there's a great uh, jazz guitarist. You might know Paul Brown. Um, yeah, he, he's he was a head of Warner's like jazz label for a long time. He, he's a great player. He's a lot of his own records. He produced George Benson, all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And he was in our band for a while. So there was a lot of good musicians around. So I feel like I kind of elevated, it elevated me to be around them. How um, was, was the dream to be a professional musician? What, what was the dream? Yeah, I mean, my parents never would have wanted me to do that. You know, so, but right. I, I started, I just love music. I mean, I just love music and were you, then our were, band, were you continuing to study music? Did you study music? I did. Um, you know, it's funny. I studied from a really great jazz. I played woodwinds then. I played saxophone and flutes. And, you know, it's, there's a guy named Don Raffel I studied with. There's a guy named Charlie Shoemaker. You might, if you know, like he's an incredible vibe player. He taught a lot of really well-known jazz players like Ted Nash, who's in New York. Um, Randy Kerber, who's a keyboard player, is incredible. He's been... So I studied a lot of jazz theory with him. Um, so I was studying it, and then this. What, these what was the? What was the? What was the? What was the dream? What was the? What? What did? What, what end did you hope to get to? I think while well, I was writing songs, so I, th I think to make it in a big band probably mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. was kind of the dream. Mm -hmm. it really, scoring wasn't really on the radar because I didn't. I knew what it was, but it really wasn't on my radar. Well, so, well, we'll talk about how that happened. Yeah. So basically, then. Uh, and did you band. go, did you go to, did you go to university? Did you go to college? UCLA. I went to UCLA. And what did you study there? Well, I studied history. I took okay, some okay. music classes, but, um, and also one thing I did during when I was at UCLA, a group of us from this band, we ended up getting hired to play with this British blues artist named Long John Baldry. And Baldry was really big in Canada. So we toured, I toured in Canada. I mean, I couldn't, wasn't old enough to drink or anything. I was like, <laughs> literally after my freshman year at UCLA, I went for the summer and took a quarter off. I was 19. And so he has a, he had a hit called Don't Lay No Boogie Woogie on the King of Rock and Roll. If you ever heard <laughs> that. And it went, I can't play this because of my left hand, but. <laughs> so it was this whole boogie woogie thing. So I played keyboards with him. So that was kind of my first like professional besides the bands we're in. We, you know, we were signed to William Morris in a production. Oh, wow. We did some stuff like that. Like what, what, what was that original, what were those original Well, there's one called Sundance. We had different names. We were Heart for a while, but then the other Heart came out. So we couldn't be Heart. 
It was different configuration. So and were you doing were you playing jazz? No, 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 no. These were all like rock bands, pop bands. Okay. That's what I thought. Um I'm saying jazz was just my personal gotcha. motivation, I think, for getting, you know, I love jazz, but no, these were like um somewhat blues influenced, some, mm. you know, to some degree. Um, I mean, people kind of compared us to the California sound, some of it, like uh, I'm trying to think. Um a little bit tied to like what Jackson Brown would do or something. Not exactly, but a little bit more rock or a little bit. Um, but, you know, some of the bands like like that. I mean, I had other, I love Joni Mitchell, who's, of course, had a lot of all kinds of influences, right? Jazz, I'm, pop, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we had some stuff going, but we never really, you know, made it, quote unquote. And so I was going to UCLA, but that gave me this background, which is, I'm, mm -hmm. which I can tell you how I got into the business which is very yeah. serendipitous, which was, and, so, wait, I so knew, how are your, before we get to that, how are your parents feeling about your passion for music? And are you getting a history degree because they've pressed you to like have something to fall well, back I wanted on? To go, I did want to go to college, mm -hmm. but no, they definitely wanted me to like, they, I mean, initially they just didn't think I could make a living in music, mm -hmm. you know, from their standpoint. Mm -hmm. They never really stopped me. They didn't discourage me from playing. In fact, we had band practices in my house and mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that, um, but I think they were concerned about it. Yeah. You know, and um, so, I mean, I definitely expected me to go to college and I was a good student and stuff. So, um, but I was pretty heavily involved in music, even when I was going to school and playing, playing gigs and recording and doing demos and had this William Morris deal and stuff. So, um, and then, so what happened was, I had a friend, her name is Penny Lee Hallen, and she happens to be Gary Marshall's. That's who, that's who Cindy mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Cindy's friends with Ronnie Hallen, who's, who's Penny's, who's Penny's mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, back then it was really different. She was working at Paramount and she was the production assistant on this before the show wasn't even on the area called Morgan Mindy, mm -hmm. which of course launched Robin Williams. And I, the way it worked, it was really loose and this changed, but she went on to a different job, like as dialogue coach say, and she said, Hey, do you want to do this job for the summer? You can be production assistant. I mean, it used to be called gopher back then or so, you know, you, right. you'd be the one that did whatever <laughs> they needed and was like hardly any money, like 150 bucks a week. And I didn't, you know, I thought, Oh, it sounds fine. I know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So that was, um, I started the summer of 78. I wasn't even 21 and I had to buy beer for one of our producers. And I always like was scared shitless to go to the liquor store that they card me because I didn't, you know, I wasn't 21 yet. So I started there and I was in these bands and there's a guy named Jim O'Keefe, who was one of the uh, associate producers. And mm -hmm. he kind of knew my music and people would come to my gigs and we were, we were good. Mm -hmm. So he knew I was like new music and just, this is like crazy within like, I decided to not go back to UCLA, even though I only had like a year and a quarter left because I said, well, this is pretty cool. Like, and then Robin Williams took off and I was hanging out. I was doing songs with him and the, you know, and we had our band warming up the show and we were doing blues stuff with him. He wow. played with us every week. And that was an incredibly fun, like little, that was one of the funnest shows I ever did in my life. Wow. By the way. But um, so I met all these people and I was on the lot and I met people because I have to run around and I have to drive scripts to actors and 
get contracts signed and I get to read, you know, contracts and see all this stuff. Cause I was just like, like this young guy that was like, Oh, take this, copy this, do that. So I thought, Hmm, this is probably a pretty good place to be. And within four months I was hired as being this pretty big job, which is music coordinator for all the Gary Marshall shows, which is crazy. How, how, how the hell did that happen? Well, they were really fans like Ronnie Hallen. Um, I mean, I knew Gary, but not, I didn't know Gary that well, but Ronnie and these producers really loved, you know, whereas I was in original bands, they'd come to our gigs, they knew I knew music and they needed somebody, the person who was doing that job, who ended up being like a very successful director and producer named Rich Carell, who was one of the creators of Hannah Montana, did a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. He went on to do another job. Like he wanted to be an associate producer and do that. So that he was doing that job, it opened up and they offered me the job. So it was crazy. So, and I had to supervise. So you went from being a gopher right. to being a music coordinator. Right. And my job was pretty big <laughs> because Laverne and Shirley had talent shows all the time. Happy Days had band stuff. And I was literally supposed to be in charge. I have to go to the studio, supervise sessions. I did arrangements. Um, did you know what you were doing when you were doing this? Well, job? I mean, I knew what I was doing um, with music, kind of. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was, I, I produced like even Anson Williams. I produced Anson session, you know, for happy days. I, I did. Um, I'm calling Anson as soon as we get off the air. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did. So I was in there, this kid, I mean, to think of it now, you know, I mean, I was 21 basically, you know, and. That's just, cra that is great. And he must not have been about the same age or close. He to was it. a little older, yeah. I mean, a little bit, but mm -hmm. not a lot, but, um, yeah. but we, uh, so, you know, I played, in Lenny and the Squig Tones a lot of time. That's how I met Stuffy Walden. We've done a, a lot of stuff together and, and a band together. Um, and I know I just kind of grew into the job. I mean, I'm sure I was really nervous when I first had to supervise sessions and stuff. And some of the older composers, like they didn't, like imagine having this 21 year old who, and there were times I had to, I was supposed to keep in charge of the budgets and the money and not let things go over time. And there was times I knew they were gonna throw a certain scene out. So I'd have to, I, I'm not gonna say what it is, but somebody was really pissed at me because I said, well, we can't record that because the scene's out. And he was like, well, I wrote it, but I knew we couldn't go over time to do, you know, so I had to kind of learn to assert myself yeah. in that job and deal with politics and the studio versus Gary Marshall. Who, I mean, Gary wanted somebody on his side to look over all this stuff. That's basically, who hired me. So, uh, and I met all these people that eventually, um, you know, Tom Miller who and Miller Boyette uh, ended up hiring me to do like- a Gary's given, gave a lot of people their he break. Did. He gave Cindy Beagle her break. Yeah. Gary Gary came in my living room when he had his book and read to a That's great. room full of women. He was amazing. Yeah, but yeah. And so Gary- Do yeah, you was, think he did that because he liked you and he- well, I think, you know, like I said, there were some other people like his sister, Ronnie mm -hmm. Hallen, I think knew my abilities more musically, but, uh, you know, I, until he passed away, I mean, I would see Gary, you know, not a lot, but I'd see him at the baseball game. I'd run into him. We, you know, he, he wanted to direct a music video with a band I was in, which stupidly the label, you know, wouldn't let him do it. I mean, we, we were in contact, you know, over the years, like, like we never really completely lost contact and mm -hmm. I still haven't with the family. And, That's you know, funny. I just talked to Ronnie a few months ago. So it was like a family thing. I don't know if he promotes that, but he really was. And he, um, 
Yeah, I think they did. I think, I mean, I think they thought I had some talent, but I mean, I, I can't even explain it, but it, I know there were a lot of young people around then, you know, and it was, mm -hmm. you could not get a production assistant job the, the next year or two, it all mm -hmm. shut down because then you had to be, uh, you had to know the president of Paramount to get those jobs or you had to, like, nobody could just get it that way. Right. Get a foot in the door. It became so unbelievably political. So mm -hmm. I just got a foot in the door and kind of stayed. And then that evolved into writing theme songs on spec. And then I got some of that. I started doing my own arrangements instead of supervising other people. And it just kind of evolved from there. Wow. So and how did it evolve time. from being a music coordinator to, com to composing? How did well, that jump happen? So there were pilots for Garrigan. So I, um, I did one, I, I did a spec theme on something called Mean Jeans, which was Rob Lowe's first show, I think. Oh, wow. His first pilot. He was from Florida. He was like a teenager. And um, and we got Sister Sledge, who had done We Are Family. You know, they were huge then. You know, we are family. Oh, hell yeah, I know. So yeah. they sang that. And uh, Joel Sill was, was running the music department then. So he got them. And yeah, I produced it and, and, and wrote the song with another colleague of mine. Um, so I started getting songs in pilots. And, you know, a lot of pilots don't go or right or shows, but I started, I actually scored happy days. I scored, you know, towards the very end. I did some episodes. I did some little and truly episodes. Well, what's the first television show that what, what's the, what was your the first, first score scoring I did? gig? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it was either, cause to be really honest, it's so long ago. I think I did. I think I did the famous um, jump the shark happy days. No, episodes. you I, did. I think I did. I, <laughs> I'm because it was at the end of happy days I started scoring them and I remember like Henry Winkler and Malibu and what a place I think I did start. I'm not even I shouldn't say that because I should check it out but it's funny um I definitely was at least involved in it or you know supervise it but I think I might have even done it wow. but I did the show called the new odd couple mm -hmm. which was like a black version of the odd couple um who was in that the guy from Barney Miller uh I can't think of it all thing, but I scored new odd couple was my probably my first show that I was like the composer to do all the episodes. Steve Landisberg. No, it wasn't him. It was it wasn't Hal Linden. No. It, it wasn't Glass. Yes, it was Ron Glass. Yeah, Ron Glass. Yeah. Okay. So Ron Glass was in it. I mean, you could look it up, you'd see, but that was my first like full-time show. I did a drama like pilot called Feel the Heat. I did some Laverne Shirley stuff. So, okay, so wait, let's stop here for a second, because here you're segueing into like a whole different deal right. from coordinating music to comp composing. Now, you've been writing music for a long time, but right. actually doing a score, right. what prepared you? Oh, I was studying. Yeah, well, so first of all, I went to all kinds of scoring dates. I even went to scoring dates with James Horner doing 48 hours because I was on the lot. Like I was. It's what you wanted to do now. I, at that point, I really wanted to do that. So I see. And there was a, a really well-known mixer, Danny Wallen, who ran the scoring stage at Paramount. I used to, you know, we had, we got along great. And of course I supervised sessions that he recorded, but he'd invite me to these big movie dates. So I saw James Horner there. I'm trying to think of some other composers, but I saw some really big scoring dates on big movies. And it was incredibly mm -hmm. inspiring to see, you know, 60 players in there or something. It's like, I want to do that. And I was studying like crazy. I was studying orchestration. I was studying scores on my own. I was going to say, do you have, do you, did you study conducting? Like, oh, I studied conducting must, for, yeah, yeah. for 10 or 12 years. Uh huh. So I, I studied conducting, I studied orchestrating. I did some like 
I think composing, you kind of hear it. Like I studied some with Walter Scharf, who's a pretty well-known like film composer teacher, but mm -hmm. I think I really got the craft of orchestrating and stuff more than I studied quote unquote composing or how to write a melody. I don't know how you teach somebody how to write a melody really. Right. You, right. you know, um, so I did a lot of, <clears throat> I worked really hard on that stuff to kind of be ready. Cause in those days you just go on a live scoring day. I had to conduct, I mean, the first time I had to conduct a big group. <clears throat> how, how old were you when that was happening? I mean, early twenties. I mean, not, not the first wow. year, you know, probably 23, 24. Wow. I almost blacked out, honestly, the first time I had to conduct. <laughs> and I, I had I had a woodwind player. So, so I'm not going to, there was a woodwind player who was married to a cellist. It was this very beautiful, um, you know, this very gorgeous woman. And she was really nice and supportive. And he started to razz me during the date. So he was like really giving me a hard time because they knew, look, I'm like 23, 24. I'm nervous. I'm sure they can, they can tell. I mean, the score came out well and they liked, you know, the producers mm -hmm. liked it, but I was very nervous. So he was really giving me a hard time. It was like, he was like hazing me on the date and she kept oh, trying God. to like defend me. They got divorced like two years after that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I never hired that guy again. And I ended up doing like 45 series and 30 movies. Hello. Really. I That's never so hired that guy again. And I'm not a vindictive person, but it's like, okay, you yeah, fucked yeah. with me when I was like getting my shot, you know? I never yep. forgot it. Isn't that funny? It's like, the way life, life is. Yeah, yeah. I would never hire him. I, he would come up and go, no, I don't I want him. Mm -hmm. So, but if, eventually I loved conducting and I studied and um, I felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. I got so, okay, so how did that, that side of your career take off? What, okay, what so then, um, so through Gary Marshall and through that whole job, there was a this producer, Tom Miller. Well, there was a company... Miller, Milkus, Boyette. So, so they they co-produced like Mork and Mindy, Happy Days. I mean, Tom Miller is one of the creators of Happy Days. I mean, he mm -hmm. he's phenomenally successful. They also had some great movies, <coughs> Silver Streak, with Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, Foul Play with Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn. Fantastic. I mean, everything they did turned mm -hmm. to gold, basically. Mm -hmm. So they already owned parts of all these, they were partners with Gary. Then they went off and started their own dynasty at Lorimar, and then it turned to Warner Brothers. So that was around 84. So basically I stopped working my regular gig like around 83 at Paramount, something like that. And then 83, your, 84. Your regular gig, what's your- Well, I'm saying, cause I was on the lot doing shows. So I was a music coordinator and then I was even scoring I probably still had that job at one point mm -hmm. before I stopped. Like, I don't remember the timing, but mm -hmm. I was around Paramount all the time doing the shows, mm -hmm. coordinating, scoring. And so then Miller Boyette started this other set of shows that ended up being crazy popular, you know? So they actually went to me to write a theme for the show, Perfect Strangers. And I wasn't, um, so I wrote that theme with Can the you guy give us Jesse. a little taste of that? Yeah. So, so it started with the keyboard thing. It was like we had a so we had a harmonica player. Uh, so it was like sometimes the world looks perfect, nothing to rearrange. So it, it was this kind of keyboard, mm -hmm. and the 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 chorus was standing tall on the wings of my dream, rise and fall. 
on the wings of my dream through the rain and thunder the wind and haze i'm bound for better days so and all this but was that your first uh, main title well no well it was the first one that was really successful and something that went 200 episodes or something um because yeah. i'd done pilots i'd done and um so i wrote that with jesse frederick who is mm-hmm. you know uh, he was a singer songwriter good songwriter and um so it ended up it was kind of on spec because i had to approve it mm-hmm. but definitely had the inside track because i'd worked with those guys and knew them and they loved it and every one of their songs they had very formulaic shows just like gary did but it was all right. about you know gary described it as a recess because even though you get all this critical shit it was like people need to unwind people need to like have fun and you know turn off from all their their real life sometimes you know and just escape right. it was kind of about escapism so mm-hmm. they wanted all the things to be very aspirational very positive and they they had budgets i mean we had big string groups come in like i'm perfect strangers and step by step family matters a lot of these shows and they're really loyal so once that clicked and that was it like they wanted jesse and i to write to everything that they did and that turned into like a dynasty like tgif um was a friday night they had a whole block of shows on friday night and then tuesday nights i think at one point we had six series on at the same time wow so because these shows lasted um i want to say Perfect Strangers was eight years. I think Full House was nine years. Family Matters was 10 years. Step by Step was eight years. Wow. And- um, You were busy. We were really busy. So Jesse and I formed like this partnership during that time. And we were doing a ton of these shows and things. And they just kind of exploded. And, and, you know, we were scoring a lot of them too. like we did all of Full House, like some of the shows later on, other people do some of the week to week stuff, but mm-hmm. all of the shows, Tom and Bob wanted us to start and score all of them, you know, get them going, get them up and going. So that was kind of that era, um, mid eighties till early nineties. We were just turning them out. And a part of me, I knew I could do movies and do more serious scoring. So a part of me got a little burned out doing it, but I knew it was like smart. Like it was just riding that wave, you know, it was like getting big series and something that was really Get them while you can. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. um, so, so we, you know, we had this great partnership during that time. And, but then I was really looking at other avenues to try to branch out. To do, to do. I really wanted to score movies, but I wanted to do draw like, like, you know, everything's really shifted in the business now. There's incredible television series now, like in all the clubs. Oh my God, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I it's mean, better than, in general, probably better than movies, like a lot of the best actors. Oh yeah. But back then, like it was really elite to do movies, right? Yes. And a lot of the network television stuff was, even dramas were pretty formulaic and some right. of them still are, but mm-hmm. uh, I really wanted to do movies and I really wanted to branch out. I wanted to do my own stuff. I wanted to score my own things on my own more and- so I think in, in, in um, I signed with the Gorfain Schwartz agency, uh, it was a great agency and they, I got my first, it's not my first feature because I had done one before with Jesse, but I got my first really indie feature on my own in 1993, which was called Nature of the Beast, which ended up being a new line. Uh, it was with Lance Henriksen, Eric Roberts. Good and friend um, of mine, Eric. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he'll know. So we did that. Them. Yeah. It actually did really, really well um, I think in those days, there's still a lot of like 
like video and like all these other revenue sources, like mm-hmm. people rented movies and they television, like it did really well for the, for a lower budget movie. And that kind of started me and Stuffy Walden, I mentioned has a, been a great friend of mine since the late seventies. Wow. He, he was starting, he did 30 something in 88 or 87. I think that started. And I remember he played me the music he was running for the pilot and was running stuff by me. I mean, we were just really good friends and his career just took off like crazy. And so Snuffy also really wanted me to come in and either write some stuff with him or score some of the shows he was doing themes for because he really needed help and you know trusted me. So that was kind of a nice thing. So I did, I did Nature of the Beast. Then he had me come in and score like every other episode of Early Edition, the show with Kyle Chandler. Mm-hmm which ran for quite a few years. So I did, Steffi did the pilot, wrote the theme, but he didn't really score hardly any of them. I think I just scored every other one and Joseph Williams, actually John uh, Williams' son scored mm-hmm. every other one for a while. So I started doing dramas through Snuffy and that really helped me. And I did Providence on NBC, which was on, you know, you saw and quite a few of those. And I was starting to do movies as well. So I kind of had this, indie movie thing going I was doing dramas uh, on television and I just got out of sitcoms I didn't want to do sitcoms anymore like it was great I was like it was kind of like okay that was a big great success mm-hmm. but I kind of got out of it and Jesse and I are still good friends but we kind of went our own way and I was kind of doing I was doing my own on my own movie stuff and working with Snuffy or sometimes on shows where he would start I would take over depending on, on what it was so I was busy. I was really busy um, and working with, with some bands too. So how did the band, what, what bands were you? Um... Well, I was in a band. So I was in a band called Bang Bang in 84 and 85. This is another one. Watch, okay. I watched the video as you okay. suggest that I do. And I laughed so hard. Sydney, yeah. boyfriend has a video from the eighties. That was a hit. Uh, but uh, the, it reminded me a lot of like Boy George. It kind of had that vibe. Right. So the, the, the yeah. lead singer, Julian Raymond, who I still work with all the time. Um, and yeah, we had makeup and crazy. 80s oh, hair, God. And we were hair. signing Epic. And, you know, we had some energy going f- for a while and we had mm-hmm. a kind of a, a good record deal and stuff. I mean, it never went over the hump. But so Julian ended up being a really successful producer, songwriter, he had multi platinum bands like Fastball, like, like, he, he's he's with Big Machine Records now. He's produced like number one hits. He's worked with a ton of bands. So he ended up, he and Bang Bang, I ended up co-producing the records. I was really in a production playing. I co-produced with Bob Margulif, you know who that is. He was one of the original Moog. Like he had this Moog called Tonto with Stevie Wonder. So he produced Stevie Wonder records. I think mm. like Intervisions and a bunch of records. Oh, my, like one of my favorite albums yeah, of all so times. We, yeah. I ended up co-producing with him. But Julie and I have been friends ever since, like really close. That's what, 36 years ago, 37 years ago. Wow. So he wanted me to come in and do all the stuff he did mm-hmm. as doing string arrangements. So I worked with a lot of artists through him. And like the band Fastball, they, they had a song called The Way, which is a huge hit. Um, and I worked all kinds of different artists. He was a different You mentioned Brian, the Brian Setzer orchestra. Yeah, so Brian Setzer, mm-hmm. so kind of through doing all that then some artists knew of me so I knew Brian Setzer's manager so they hired me to write arrangements for Brian Setzer's big band both for records and some live stuff um I did a Rob Zombie record the first time he ever had strings on a record 
because he knew this this movie I did called Jeepers Creepers, where we had big orchestra and and so and he was starting he was starting to do his own horror movies as a director. I worked with Motley Crue. Um, Tommy Lee was a fan, so I had these weird things. Like even though I wasn't really a metal cheap trick, you talked about cheap. I've done a lot of stuff with cheap trick. So I worked on records with them, but I did some really cool stuff with them even more recently, where we did. I did arrangements of the Dream Police record for orchestra and we performed them live, like like in different cities, like Milwaukee, we did a bunch of dates and I conducted and we had the orchestra and I, cool. I wore this like police outfit from the Dream Police record, you know, mm -hmm. with a English Bobby cap and a long, you know, long tails. And that was great. And we also did the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's record beginning to end. So I got to, I got all the original tracks from the from Sgt. Pepper's record every individual track that they did and I recreated the whole Sgt. Pepper's record just like they did I did you know all the same vocals all the parts and we performed it we performed um how like what are some of the we performed with some of the Chicago Symphony of Ravinia in Chicago we did the Greek theater we did the Dream Police show wow. at the Greek um you know all over you know in Florida I haven't worked on the records I've done arrangements um I've done with a lot of different artists, but Cheap Trick, you know, those, we're, I'm really friendly with those guys and stay in touch. And, you know, they're, I love the band. I love the band when they came out. Mm -hmm. Live at Budokan is an amazing record. And yeah. so I got to be on stage with them doing, you know, I Want You to Want Me and Surrender and their hits and so fabulous. arrangements and, the, and Sergeant Pepper's record, which they killed. So I've kind of always had this foot in that door. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've definitely done more scoring than, that stuff, but I have sort of continuously like done that over the years. So, you know, and I like that. I like being part of bands or even though I've been playing on some records and still, still doing it. I mean, we're still Crystal, doing it. Crystal's on here and she says to say hi and she misses you. Hi. And, and uh, so have you, have you played music since the pandemic? Have you played with other players? Not, li not live. I mean, other, yeah, the right. studios I mentioned, mm -hmm. but um, you know what? It's just, Cause that's not the main thing I do. And we were doing those gigs with Babylon social club with snuffy and all, you know, it just was kind of weird for me. Cause it's not, I was working, I was scoring mm -hmm. and it was easier to score stuff than to do live stuff. Right. So unfortunately that part of what I was doing is like went to the back burner for sure. Kind of went to, mm -hmm. I want to do it. I want to play live, but mm -hmm. it just kind of went to pause mode. So hopefully, you know, I, I play sometimes with, with Teresa James and Terry and their love them too, who are mm -hmm. great. And they like me to play with them. So I'm, I think as this year comes on, I'll do some stuff with them. I see that as being like the next live stuff I do. And so what, Bennett, looking ahead, is there something that you haven't done that, you, that you'd still liked? Because you, what you've accomplished, what you've, it seems like everything that you sort of set your sights on, you've done. Is there something else that you haven't yet or an extension of something um, you've done? That's a good, good question. I have to think about that. Um, you know, this movie I did, Bonded, mm -hmm. I, would, I would love to have um, just more opportunities at really character-driven movies, projects. I mean, I've, I've loved doing these music documentaries mm -hmm. and more, more in the pipeline, I think. With James Keach, I want to keep doing those. Um, but I want to keep looking for these real character-driven movies because it's not, I don't need to do a bunch of like, you know, hit sitcom themes anymore or something like that. Like, right. I kind of did all that. It was, it paid off to do all of it, but it's kind of more, 
I just want to do projects that are, I guess I do a really good horror movie, but like I had fe features that did really well, like the Jeepers movies, number mm -hmm. one box office, very successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I would do a really good one, you know, like Get Out or something like that, which I really like, but I don't want to focus, like, I don't want to do kind of low budget horror movies or something, for example, really, so I wouldn't it, focus on that. I, I want to do more character this stage of your career, Bennett, is it, are you, do you get gigs mostly from people that know you that you've worked with or is it your agent getting you the work or? I mean, I think it's mostly through people, you know, at this point I've been in the mm -hmm. business for like over 40 years. So mm -hmm. I think you really, almost anybody in my position gets it through your relationships over the years right. mostly, but they do, they put me up for stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I love, you know, I love my agency and uh, shout out, shout out to Maria Machado, <laughs> Andrew Zachs, or primarily I work with Gorfain Schwartz and Mike Gorfain <laughs> and Sam Schwartz. Um, I mean, I love those guys and they do put me up for stuff. And I, you know, occasionally we'll get stuff just on a cold call or somebody knows me or knows something I've done, but relationships are kind of the, building block, you know, just getting yeah, calls sense. from people that I've worked with in the past. And, um, but, you know, you still, every job you get, you can't say, oh, well, I've worked for this person, you know, six times. So somebody, this isn't my expression, but you really have to look at everything. I think it's like, like it's the first time mm -hmm. you really have to give that kind of effort. I feel like every, anytime you get something, you have to have a little sense of urgency that it's got to be great. And you got to put your all into it. And I think that's why I like working on this Bonded movie because it was really like a ton of music and um, it was a really dark, like serious subject and it was really tricky to get the right. So I like that, you know. Can, kind you, of play us, can you play us something that, that, um, that came from that? Or play us, some, any, play us anything you want. Play, give us a little taste of something. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think from that movie because it's such a dark, hmm. um, this is a harp. This is a piece with harp. I well, one thing I did is kind of a funny story about bonded. Mm -hmm. So, I've done a lot of projects where I've used vocals and used singers, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not a singer. I mean, I've never been a singer. I've never sang lead on something. Mm -hmm. So, there's a theme um, from bonded called the woman in black theme, and it's on a harp, and it goes like this. It's kind of this very hypnotic. Um, So it, it, anyway, but what I did, I, I thought I did something thinking, okay, I'm going to replace this, but I did these vocals. So the whole idea of, of this theme is there's this woman in black. There's a, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give away the story, but mm -hmm. she's somebody that on one hand, she's kind of beautiful and talks nicely, but there's this very, very dark side of this character. So the director wanted a piece, which was kind of the light against the dark. All in one piece. So I have this very pretty harp part. And um, let me see if I can get a harp up for a second. I might, I might not be able to. No, it's not, it's not coming up right now. Um, so anyway, um, I had this idea that I would have this pretty harp and I wanted these really dark grungy vocals, like as low as possible, like doing these, like the kind of like would come in at these different times against this pretty harp. So I sat in here and I came up with these parts myself thinking, okay, I'm going to hire somebody to do this. And, um, and I stacked them up like 12, you know, I kept layering them and I sang as low as I could. I can get pretty low. Mm -hmm. I kind of got this grunge and affected them. 
So I, and, and the director was, you know, pretty picky about the music. So he, he'd come over and sometimes we did zoom, but he'd come over mm -hmm. and I planned this piece and he just leapt up in the air and goes, Oh my God, that's incredible. Wow. And I started explaining to him, I go, well, look, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to get singers he goes, no, what are you talking about? He said, it's incredible. That's my, my wow. favorite thing. The vocals are. So I am now like a vocalist throughout this movie yeah. and all these scenes. And fabulous. we ended up, um, that's definitely my, it's not my vocal debut because sometimes I've seen little background parts, but I mean, it's really this prominent part with this dark against the light and this woman in black theme. So it was really funny. So it just ended up being in the movie and everybody seemed to like, it's kind of a weird part. Like it just doesn't sound like anything else. If that makes sense. It's kind of yeah. a sound. Um, so that was kind of a funny thing. So there's some kind of cool things that came out of it. It's a kind of score because it's so dark. It's, it's hard to really plunk out the score other than you know something like that um so like when you're doing horror like for jeepers creepers yeah can you give us a little taste of that oh my god i don't do you remember anything i, I don't think i can it's really hard to okay. play on a, i don't have playing keyboard but yeah. what i did on that one which is kind of cool um i had really good budgets on those movies partly because it was a different era I think, I think horror movies now, like it's very hard to get a good budget where you can have like 80 piece orchestra and you know, stuff like that. I don't think it's very common now, but um, mm -hmm. I did a sampling session with 50 string players before I even did the score. And I think I, you know, as I told you, I had studied a lot of classical scores and I studied mm -hmm. a lot of, for that movie, I researched a lot of modern classical, really dark music, like from World War II. And um, there's a piece called, Serenity to the Victims of Hiroshima. It's a pretty, pretty famous piece mm -hmm. um, by Penderecki. So he, um, I studied a lot of that kind of music. And mm -hmm. there's a guy named Nono, who's this Italian composer, nobody would know, but he wrote all this like really dark brass, turbulent music about war-torn Europe. So I kind of immersed myself <laughs> in classical music. And um, I used, um, I just kind of tried to come up with a lot of unique string stuff that was really kind of weird. And, and we, I worked with a guy named Mark Menzies, who was a great, um, he's actually, a, I don't know if he still is, but he's a professor at CalArts. And um, he was into all these weird string techniques and you'd put thimbles on the strings and alligator clips and create all these weird sounds and bends and and so we did a whole sampling session of that and one of the most amazing things i ever did um i did a sampling session at my studio on a prepared piano prepared pianos when you like change a piano and you you maybe bow it with um you know fishing line or a super ball there was a guy who was unbelievable he was a social anarchist he was like off the grid <laughs> he was a genius i can't even think of his name and i maybe it'll come to me but I had him come in and he mm. made the piano moan, sound like a human voice. Wow. So I, I kind of like created this whole library and it was sort of at a time where you could use samples because it was like, the first one I think was 2001. So mm -hmm. it was sort of like, we we're already using samplers and you know, commonly and, and so that one was totally different. So I kind of came up with this whole weird library and you know, people tell me they're like, that score is like really terrified that like, like literally viscerally <laughs> like Snuffy's kid heard it when he was like, um, 
you know, he wasn't a little kid. He was a teenager or something and got really scared. I mean, one of my daughters <laughs> heard me working. So I was on TV because it was on television all the time. Like the, it really did like very well. And like, she was scared out of her mind, you know, like, do you, do you ever creep yourself out when you're writing this music? I mean, it's funny. Cause I don't really feel like I have this <clears throat> really dark life or anything or really mm -hmm. tortured, you know, <laughs> background or anything, but obviously it's in there somewhere. Right. Like, I just like sound and I like, I like being, you know, kind of like a character in the movie and just finding what I love that. I, I that's kind of like in my original bio on the website, which is down now that I'm working mm -hmm. on, but um, I kind of talk about that. I, I'm not really that I just, it hasn't evolved. I'm not that guy that does the same thing and stays in the same genre. Right. And which is sometimes a good way to build a career. Cause everybody knows you as the guy that does this or the right, right. or something like I've kind of liked stepping in these different genres. And um, so Jeepers was really great to have that kind of budget and to do all this great sampling and come up with a library that was really unique for that movie mm -hmm. and to be really scary. Like it was, and had incredible players. You know, we, we did it in LA. It was like kind of the John, I think John Williams had done a date the week before with the same engineer and the same players, essentially. I mean, we really mm -hmm. had that level. So to conduct that, was really pretty amazing. I mean, sounds fabulous. Definitely one of the highlights of my career. Too. Sounds like a good Halloween movie for me to uh, to dip into. Well, even this and the soundtracks, there's soundtracks out and stuff like mm -hmm. you can, you know, listen to some of it or see some of it. But Jeepers One, especially, it was actually very well reviewed. Like mm -hmm. Kevin Turan and the LA Times, like for a horror movie, it was a kind of a very slow building movie. I think it's, they said one of the scariest movies he's ever seen. And, you know, I, you know, I've never seen it. I definitely am going to be watching it now. Yeah. I mean, to me, of course, I knew the movie, so mm -hmm. it didn't affect me that way because I knew everything that happened. I right. can't really see it as a viewer. Wait, but isn't the lead? Um, I know. Justin him. Long. Oh, God, I have a. Yeah. Justin Long. Yeah, it's it was fantastic. Justin Long and Gina mm -hmm. Phillips was his sister. It was a brother sister. It was kind of cool. They they played brothers and sisters. Mm hmm. Um, and they kind of had, you know, um, they kind of played off their relationships, which was kind of nice, like a typical sibling rivalry that loved each other. You know, there's a little brother sister thing in there. And cool. Jonathan Breck played the creeper and he ended up having this whole career of going to Comic-Con and stuff like that. And uh, he's a super nice guy, like the nicest, like not dark guy. you ever Right. Want to and yeah, that's another one of those weird things. Like I never expected... Uh, you know, I got a call from Sam Schwartz from Gorfain Schwartz the day after it came out or the weekend. He goes, congratulations, you have the number one movie in the country. Wow. I'm like, what? Really? Wow. Like, you know. And 18 plus BMI awards you've won. You've, you've had. Yeah. That. Yeah. A lot of that's for the television series for themes. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Full House was revived as Fuller House on Netflix, which just ended, I think, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. In fact, the show is still going when I had my injury. I, I did a stand. It was a funny thing because mm -hmm. we did our theme, the same original theme with Carly Rae Jepsen. We had, we had a charting single with it. Wow. And I was kind of had really mixed feelings about it because if, initially I said, like, I don't want to do a sick, I haven't done a sitcom in 20 years because they really wanted to bring Jesse and I back to do the show. And Warners did and Bob Boyette and Tom Miller really did. And at first I wouldn't do it, you know, for a couple of months. I'm like, I don't know. It just feels weird to go back. 
But then every, everybody said, come on, you got to do it. It's just, so I did it. And I'm glad I did because the girls who are kids on the shows like Candace Cameron, Beret and, and Andrea Barber, Jody Sweeten, they played the girls. They were the main, you know, they were drove, drove the show. Now, even though Stamos mm -hmm. and, and SAG, all those guys are in it still. Right. They really drove the show and they were like fantastic to work with. And I was like, nice. it was really cool to see them grow up. And they, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Andrea wrote an episode, Candace directed, fantastic. I think multiple episodes, Jody directed. They, Candace did a big song and dance thing. Jody sang a lot of songs, which we did with her and wrote a lot of songs. Um, and, you know, I know those guys. I mean, I know mm -hmm. Bob Saget and Stamos, Dave Coulier, because we were all young doing the show and would hang out back then did you ever play music with john stamos yeah well he did stuff well first of all on the original full house he sang uh -huh. you know songs so and i produced a lot of that and in fact john came um when cheap trick was in town after we did all that stuff just just before the pandemic like we my wife and i and him and his nephew went to cheap trick together you know and saw the concert because he was a big fan of theirs and he mm -hmm. you know he loves bands i mean he's mm -hmm. He's uh, always around bands, always around music. So, you know, we, we unlike most shows I do, um, we all had a connection with that cast. You know, we yeah. all kind of hung out at times. And so it was kind of really nice in that way. It was like a homecoming of everybody. Mm -hmm. So it was, I'm glad I ended up doing it in the end. And it went five seasons on Netflix, which is a lot. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so we even won like three BMI awards for that. Because I think we Fantastic. were, Netflix doesn't really, publicly release their numbers right but the bmi awards only went to like the top four or five shows on all of netflix so you know they have tons of a big platform there so it did very very well mm -hmm. and netflix kind of used it at the time to sort of expand they were doing all these great shows like house of cards and mm -hmm. very um you know critically acclaimed stuff but they actually wanted to broaden their platform Right. And we did a show. We did the main title in Japanese. They did an episode in Japan, which was really expensive. We brought in a singer to sing in Japanese and they got a bunch of subscribers supposedly in Japan from that. Like there's Very definitely cool. a strategy, I think. Mm -hmm. And oh God, um, to everything they do, there's a strategy. Yeah. And they got, I think they, they definitely got new subscribers from, you know, from having the show on the platform. So Fantastic. I was glad I did it because I reconnected with everybody. And it's it was one of those just fun things. Everybody's super nice and, you know, um well, so. Bennett, you are super nice and i'm so glad that after a year and a half, yeah. half we finally got to sit down and do this even uh, i feel like we're in the same room even though we're not yeah um and i really look forward to uh to everything you've got coming in the future and i i am very inspired and um it's it's a great reminder how important gratitude is and to yeah. stay in what you can do rather than in what you can't. And you're a great example of thank that. You. And um, thank well, you. It's just kind of how I feel. I mean, it's not people say, well, how can you, do, you know, it's like, I guess I'm kind of just wired like that because I love the things that I do and I just wanted to do them. So Fantastic. if that makes sense, like it's just totally. where I, my mind kind of went, it wasn't like I had to ward off and it was kind of a cool challenge to come back. Like, of course, we'd never choose for something like, like that to happen. But since it did happen, acceptance is a big thing too, I think. Absolutely. Like uh, acceptance. And then it became, it was almost, there was a part of it that was like a cool challenge and almost like a little bit fun. Like, okay, let's see what I can do in the mm -hmm. next month. Let's see what I can do. 
you know, with my therapists, my doctors, with my friends, with my musical people, like there's a part of it that's weirdly rewarding too. To come back, like I think it, you know, it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger or something, whatever. All of that. Um, Absolutely. So I didn't really have to make a big conscious effort to be brave or something. It's just kind of how I felt about it, you know? Well, it's kind of who you are. That's just kind of who you are. Yeah. So thank you so much for doing this, Bennett. I look forward to uh, a future day where I can come see you play live. Please do. Yes. I, I'm sure we will the next year, at least with Teresa. So look forward to come and say hi. I absolutely will. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Take good care. My pleasure. Thank you.